This is the Future of HR Podcast, Episode 1. If we're not really bringing leadership along with our expertise, we leave so much value on the table. Not only does a strong HR leader know how to bring new solutions, new technologies, or new strategies to the table, but our true leadership is tested by our ability to lead the change associated with it. Why do some HR professionals have more influence and impact than others? How do you develop the mindset and skills required to become a coach and trusted advisor? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, my guest is Ken Keener, founder of Keener Advisors. Ken is an accomplished executive coach who works with senior and rising leaders to lead organizational change and master pivotal transitions in their career. Before Ken decided to become an executive coach, he had a very successful HR career and was most recently the Senior Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer of NYSource, a $5 billion publicly traded utilities company. Today, I'm going to ask Ken about how he launched his career in HR, how he learned to become an agent for change, and his advice on becoming a better coach. Ken, welcome to Future of HR. We are excited to have you here today. Well, JP, I'm excited to be here too. Thanks for inviting me. Well, and thank you for being our inaugural guest. So you will forever be famous for being the first one on the Future of HR. Well, inaugural guest sounds a lot better than guinea pig. So (laughs) there you go. I can put inaugural guest somewhere. So let's jump into it. The first question I will have for you today is, what did you want to be as a kid and why? Let's talk about who (laughs) was Ken. Did you always think you're going to be an HR executive? Then we're going to come back to the career, but... Who is Ken Keener? (laughs) Wow. You know, it's interesting. I clearly, when I was younger, I didn't even understand what the field of human resources was. Um, It was new to me. You know, my father owned and operated his own business and he was and had an engineering background and I did not have his genetic code, you know, so I found my own way. I'd say- What kind of business did he have? What kind of business did he he have? What kind of business? Um, heating and air conditioning contracting. He's oh. a veteran of World War II and was at that perfect moment when this new thing called air conditioning was starting to proliferate. And he did commercial industrial systems. So it did really well for him and really well for our family. But yeah, as I was growing up, JP, I I what I knew about myself was that I really enjoyed engaging with people. I actually had more of a creative bent. I was into a lot of music and performance arts. I had this moment when I was in high school where the a, a teacher, a lead teacher, asked me to be the director of the student like talent variety show. And wow. it was like my zone because I love the creative <laughs> arts. I love bossing people around. But what I really meant about bossing around was I love just like producing things and bringing out the best in people and figuring out how talents could be brought forward. So at one early stage, I thought maybe like producing or directing in the entertainment industry. That was kind of (laughs) wild. 
But so, so if it wasn't HR, you might have been on Broadway or in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or bossing people around that are in Hollywood or on Broadway. <laughs> but um, Ad, I honestly did have a little bit more conservative bent to me. And what I realized, though, I really was there's this point of hardwiring where I had a knack and I got feedback that I was good at connecting with people, facilitating group discussions, building connections with folks. And I was really intrigued being the youngest of six. You learn mm. to have a lot of vicarious wisdom of watching people and watching dynamics of relationships. But I still didn't know what the heck that equated to. And so as so many people do, you just get routed straight into your undergrad thinking, well, this is what you're supposed to do, but I still wasn't clear. What I did discover, I chose a liberal arts major. And during that time, I just had, I went to the career services group and learned that there's this thing called human resource management. And I thought, this looks great. And I talked to the career advisor and said, why don't you have informational interviews with people in the field? And I did. And I found people. Hmm. Who'd you said, reach out to? You, what? Who'd you, re- how'd you, who'd you reach out to? That's, well, that's, not, um, not everyone does that, I think, to go out and talk to people who right, are doing right. the work. That's a great idea. Yeah, it was great. And I just, it was this the same thing we do today even, right? Thinking about, do I have friends or neighbors? I could ask people, do you know anybody who does this thing called human resource management? What frustrated the heck out of me was all these people, like a a human resource manager would say, well, I'm actually an accountant by training. Or another leader of um, (laughs) training and development was, you know, I used to be in engineering. And I thought, there is no clear path for me to get into human resource management because it doesn't seem like that many people just knew it early and but they slowly discovered their way there. So I'm one of the few people that figured it out during my undergrad and I just had great, actually something that was super helpful was intern opportunity that I stepped up and into just to cut my teeth in the real world. Cause so much, such the biggest question is that can people that can do great in academia actually function and impact in the real world? And I, yeah. the interning just lit my fire and it helped me clarify where so I wanted you- to work. So your career counselor said, hey, there's something called HR, human resources management. You said, that's cool. I like the management part because I like to boss people around, (laughs) of course. And then you went out and you started talking to folks and you found out, like a lot of people in HR, we sort of fall into it, right? It's not the number one career path. People come through just so many different different ways. And that's that's part of why we're, you know, people are interested in hearing more of your career path. And so then you found the internship. So tell us, how did you find an internship? How did you get your start? Again, I leveraged career services. My undergrad was at the Ohio State University. They had a great program there. I saw postings. I applied. The first internship I had was in compensation. And I cut my teeth writing job descriptions, doing salary surveys. And then I heard all these people down the hall that were really gregarious, laughing, and having a lot of fun. And those are the people that were in training and development. (laughs) And so I thought, what are they doing? That that sounds like a a little bit more fun, or at least they are enjoying themselves. Are you saying that people don't laugh in compensation and benefits? (laughs) I I just want to be clear for the record. Let's be clear. I got my CCP. (laughs) <laughs> but I still did, I didn't laugh a lot while I was taking those tests and doing the work. For um, sure, for sure. It's sometimes yeah. more solitude, but you're right. It's usually people are more outgoing. They're doing the training development or talent work, right? That's right. That's right. Yep. But it was so, fun touching a lot of the bases and human resources just to, to learn. So that was really your start. You got started as an intern, where was your in compensation? And then how long were you in that role before moved on to your next job. Yeah. So I did a couple of different organizations. I did one, I actually nosed my way into that same organization, their training and 
development department. I said, hey, I'm interning here. Could I intern with you? And they said, why not? So it was a good day for their, a good year for their budget, but I made a connection and they created the opportunity there. And then just through some more networking, I interned at a systems control organization and a retail bakery that was really fun. So it just helped me. And of course, naturally through those internships, the wife of the director that I was working under was uh, the head of administration at a fairly small organization but had a HR generalist opening. So it was just the internships, the networking that got me my first opportunity. Wow. And was it, were those internships while you were in college or yeah. out, out of college? Okay. So while still I was in the college. Summer, during the summer? Yep. Summer. And then actually even part-time while I was doing my curriculum. Terrific. And then you kind of networked your way into your first full-time HR manager job. Is that right? Yep. Well, I was the HR generalist. General generalist. Yeah. Yep. And so talk, talk us through a little bit more about, you know, you got your start. sounds like you kind of made that happen, which is terrific. What about your career? Just maybe walk us through a little bit more some of the big roles you had as you progressed. You know, just so everyone gets a view of kind of where you went from, obviously, intern, HR generalist, and all the way up. Yeah. So uh, the first big job was for United Healthcare, a uh, subsidiary that was in Central Ohio, where I started out. And that was HR generalist work. And I did progress to be promoted to be a HR manager. What was so great in early career is working benefits, working employment, working training and development, working just a lot of putting those foundational things in place or helping to build. So I really got an inside out view. After about five years, they're actually, that's when the acquisition by United Healthcare happened. Great organization and I worked in it for a period of time, but I really learned about myself that I love to be more of a designer, a creator than an administrator. Mm-hmm. And I was having less opportunities to do that as just a regional HR manager. So again, through networking, I learned of an opportunity with a consulting firm because by that time I'd gotten the excitement about talent work, leadership assessment, change <laughs> management, uh, probably just a lot of the areas that you'd find under talent and organization development. So I consulted for a few years. What was great about that is just working across a wide range of industries and learning how to eat what you kill. So you actually left, left HR for a minute and went into consulting. But it was, I'd call it technically HR consulting. Yeah, HR consulting, sure. But it was working in the fields of talent and training and development. Awesome. And I, obviously you, per, you came back to HR, right? Yep. And you came back with all that knowledge and then you had a back more on the OD and talent side. That was your more your area of expertise. I think where you're, we have passion and where you have skills, you're naturally going to excel. So I was three years with this consulting firm and I was actually doing a project at an organization at Columbia Gas, which was later became Nysource. And I was consulting and training and working with a team of managers that were dealing with a lot of organizational change. And while I was doing that work, a person in the back of the room who was in human resources said, hey, Ken, any chance you're interested? Are you ever thinking about a full-time role in an organization again? And it was just timing and opportunity. And I learned about this field and it was for a workforce planning. So it was kind of the strategic talent work that needed to be done in HR. 
And it actually coincided. My wife and I had gotten married, gotten a house, had a child. And then I was just starting to miss a lot of the time, that rearing time of our toddler. And there's just no redos for that. So it was a perfect time to kind of get off the road, get into an organization, have a predictable stream of income, and just learn how to work internally. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Tell us a little more about those roles or experiences that had the greatest impact in your development. Well, there's a couple. One experience I remember, and I'll... JP, I'll put the theme on it. It is just the intersection of opportunity and readiness to strike. And for not only for impact for your own career, but also in service to the people that were there to support. Like when I was with this consulting firm, there was this moment when we were doing a two-day intervention, a big implementation, and I was in more of a junior role. Day one, it tanked. It froze. Um, the lead, the senior consultant wasn't ready, wasn't, just wasn't being impactful. And by the end of day one, there was almost a mutiny of the participants saying, this is not at all what we thought we were going to get. Something needs to change. And I raised my hand and I said, I think I can help turn this around. And it was that Tuesday night, I just burned the midnight oil from like 8 to 2 a.m., and said, what can we do to turn this? So day two, the senior consultant who had the humility of mind to say, this isn't going well, said, I've asked Ken to come in and take us forward through the day. And the feedback was, wow. I mean, it literally was, this saved the day. This was super high value. We even said, write your own invoice. And people paid the full the fee because of the value they got. So it was just those times when you say, let me just look for that opportunity and be ready to jump in. Another big opportunity when I was internal at Columbia Gas was just that time when it was a first-time intervention. You know, the first time that for leadership development, they used 360 degree feedback, not to date myself, but it was a pretty new novel thought, you know, back in Chiseled in stone? Was it chiseled in stone at that time? Yeah, that's right. Right. Scratch on this tablet and turn it to me (laughs) anonymously, excuse me. But for that was a first time intervention, you know, like introducing something new. And not only does a strong HR leader know how to bring new solutions, new technologies, or new strategies to the table, but our true leadership is tested by our ability to lead the change associated with it. So we Mm. can so many times have a great idea for what could help address a people challenge in an organization. But if we're not attending to and thinking very strategically about how do we mobilize commitment, create consensus on the need, define a compelling vision for what success could look like, if we're not really bringing leadership along with our expertise, we leave so much value on the table. So it was moments like that that really taught me, okay, not only do you have to have a good solution, but you have to have a great change management strategy as well. When I went to be a director at American Electric Power, I learned through failure. We had a, we, when I say we, unfortunately, it was we, the human resource group, had a beautiful vision about how performance management could be better. And we decided to, in, I won't, we didn't think of it this way, but inflict it on the organization in a very rapid pace without key stakeholder input. And it's what you'd call the classic picture of organ reject. And so many, it was the one of the places where I learned the sale is in the development, not in the presentation. 
You know, mm. there's a place where the people that you're serving need to have a voice, need to have a shaping influence on what you're bringing forward so they can actually internalize it and say, this is good. This is so good. I would do this without human resources because it adds value to my operations or my business. So those are a a few windows of time when I kind of had lessons learned through failure and success. Tell me more about how you build that buy-in. As you talked about, the selling is in the development, not in the presentation. How do you influence executives? How do you influence to get something over the finish line? Yeah. Well, the managing partner at the consulting firm gave me the line, the sales and the development, not the presentation. And then a a head of training and development, this old company called CompuServe, which doesn't exist anymore. They are acquired, you know, by AOL. Her name was Deb and her gentle mentoring message to me in the most supportive, caring words were, can get linked or get lost. And what I took from that was, again, in human resources or in talent, we can have a lot of great ideas, but the linkage is to the business need. So the philosophy that I tried to, that I always made the center beam of motivation and planning was, what's the business after? What are the business challenges and what are the so what's on the people side of the organization? So if I couldn't connect the dots or if I couldn't make that linkage, I didn't feel as a steward of resources, it was hard for me to make the sale if I couldn't make that direct connect. It's great insight. Even for the value of improving engagement or building skills, if we still cannot map the value chain back to business performance or customer impact or success in getting a business goal done, it's a no-go. To no go. I like the get linked or get lost. That's yeah. a good one. I think we owe Deb a tip of the hat on that one. I think that's a really good, good point. But you obviously figure out how to link and not get lost. And at Nysource, you were the chief talent officer and then became the chief human resources officer for what, three and a half years or so, maybe a little yeah, longer? For three years. And that it's an incredible, incredible opportunity that you probably never saw. And when you first talked to your career guidance counselor, you'd be responsible for a $5 billion energy and gas company. Talk to us about how did you prepare to step in that role? How did the talent role prepare you to be the head of HR and have that kind of responsibility? I think the accumulation of a lot of experiences and a lot of learning prepared me for it. I'd certainly tell you I was fortunate, blessed, or what have you with some terrific lead that kind of encouraged my development, that gave me opportunities that would help me stretch, grow, and learn, that sometimes would say they'd take me off leash and just let me go. And I think one of the biggest gifts that they provided was trust, latitude, coupled with accountability for results or accountability for value outcomes. To become a CHRO in some ways was a more natural progression. And I think, you know, we've seen it recently, the strategy group just brought up their their report on the state of, you know, CHROs, the worlds. And so many where they traditionally had come through the compensation line, so many more now are coming out of the people or talent management area. And I'll tell right, you, most right. if I look at my calendar over the, the few years when I was at the CHRO level, so many of the priority issues were around people, talent, engagement, that 
it really helped me be very ready to continue the leveraging those strengths that I had. That's great. And I think you're right. The talent role continues to be more influential as the problems are more linked to talent. They're all people problems, of course, but that talent mindset of just tackling talent and problems that way has been very helpful. What weren't you prepared for or surprised you about the there were big there's definitely a transition, you know, from being like head of talent or head of organization development to being the CHRO. My wiring is to be a facilitative leader. My training is to be a facilitative leader when you're in the organization development space or even when you're driving talent. You really want to keep business leaders in front and support their decision making and guide. Doesn't mean you don't have a point of view and you don't have expertise, but I found myself, you know, I think it's that what got you here won't get you there. Tip the hat to Marshall Goldsmith. I think that's, <laughs> he penned that phrase was very true to becoming a chief human resource officer. The biggest adjustment that I had to make was to bring a point of view mm. to drive. And I don't want to say, I don't want to be misheard to say that when you're head of people, you don't bring up a, a point of view, but there was a lot of times when my role was a lot more facilitative. If I was as a leader of organization development, I would facilitate business strategy sessions, or I would facilitate talent review meetings. And the goal was to keep leaders in front. But when you're the CHRO, even more, the organization and the CEO, Joe, looked to me for what's your point of view? What's your decision? What's the direction that we're going to take? And that didn't go without, you know, a few months of reacclimating and reframing my mind to take more of that driver's stance. How have you developed your point of view? Well, I think anytime a problem was presented, you know, I, I kind of thought about, okay, what's my role in this process? My role is not to take a poll across the CFO, chief legal officer, and everybody and say, what do we think here? I definitely want to get their input, but my mode was to say, if I look at everything, if all the considerations, the landscape, the factors, the issues, if I confer with a very strong human leadership team and we create some alternatives, I want to bring those forward and say, and here's two or three routes we could go. I'd like your input in this. If it, were my, if it were my call, and it may be my call sometimes, I think option B is the way. So rather than, I think in my own head, I just fig- I had to get this mental model of being the tip of the spear, you know, mm. not the support, not the wind beneath the wings, but actually to drive and define the people agenda. So I think there's a mindset change and then a mode of operation change as well. Yeah. And I think that's it's really well said. And when you were an HR generalist, did you have that similar point of view or did you feel like, hey, I'm still facilitating? Yeah, I think I think there's a similar tension at every level. You know, human resource leaders are paid to be experts and are paid to have a point of view. But at the end of the day, the business, the person who's going to execute a hiring decision or a termination decision is not HR. That's the job of the organizational leader that you're supporting or partnering with. And so as much as you can say, if it were my call, this is what I do, or you've got some options here, here's some things that I see that I think you ought to pay attention to, that advocacy is strong. 
But I still think at the end of the day, the business is going to be making the people calls. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice you have for people aspiring to be a chief people officer? Hmm. Well, I think it's a, I think part of this is the old, to quote somebody else, this Casey Kasem used to be said, keep your head in the clouds and your feet on the ground or something like that. But when I think about people work or talent work, I think you've got to have, it's a great combination of how to have your head in the clouds and your feet on the ground and really achieve the right balance between those two. There are tensions in being strategic, long range thinking, conceptual, but then there's that tension of being operational, practical, tactical, and get something done. There are many times where I think especially I remember when I was at Nationwide Insurance, where there's a high premium on having very well-developed plans and processes before you execute, which I think is a strength in a culture, especially in an insurance industry where you want to be manage risk and be calculated. But there are other times when I, um, I was talking to another HR partner who was just you know, riddled with questions about a proposal I had or a plan that I was implementing. And I just frankly had to say, I like the way I'm doing it wrong more than the way we've never done it before. And we had, you've got to push over some of those biases to be practical. So when I say head in the clouds, I mean, yeah, we need to have good frameworks, thinking and design in our minds, but we can be so up in the clouds that we're not really relevant and connected to the business needs. You know, when I say feet on the ground, there have to be those abilities just to get things done, to execute, to make things happen, and to marshal resources to implement. So find the balance is the advice. Great advice. Great advice. Let's shift gears a little bit. I'm interested to hear more. We're interested to hear more about that transition from being that HR executive, a chief people officer, to now being an executive coach. Mm-hmm. So what motivated you to make that transition from leading an HR function of a $5 billion organization to now supporting and helping leaders grow and tackle their own challenges and be even more effective each day? The motivations were both personal and professional. The personal side, my wife Julia and I have got to a point of life, you know, a stage of life where we have some freedom and some flexibility. And we kind of both took a step back and just thought about, okay, now here we are. What do we want the next phase or leg of our lives together to look like? And so there was that kind of on the personal side where I thought also in my heart, I think there's an area where I could even broaden the impact that I'm having. So I love the commercial world. I'm really attracted to business and my personal faith drives me to have impact to to support nonprofit charitable operations as well. And so we thought about this question professionally. It's like, I love the human resource function, especially the team that I was leading. But is there a way to think about, well, where in my career have I been really at my best, where I was doing the work I loved, getting really good feedback, seeing positive results? And it really was being in that strategic advisor or coaching or consulting realm that I really enjoyed doing it. I also had some, we were fortunate at across a few of the organizations where I was leading, we engaged some 
fantastic executive coaches that had a high impact. And it gave me a vision for what I didn't get at career services way back at Ohio State University was seeing those folks saying, wow, that's a job. We could do that and have a lot of great impact, or I could do that and have impact. So it's awesome. Yeah, it's just the right, again, it was the right timing, the phase of life and being able to think, okay, in a measured way, how could I step off and start something new? Yeah, in some ways you come back almost full circle to when you're growing up and it was about connection. How did you prepare and develop your executive coaching capabilities throughout your career? Because I think there's a, lo- there's a lot of us listening who would love to continue to think about becoming an executive coach? Well, certainly being tested in the real corporate world, you know, with leaders or many times when I would play the role of a coach. And it was a, quite frankly, it was a really good fit for me. As I spoke earlier, you know, I'm more of a facilitative leader. I like to draw people out. I like to support and guide thinking. Sometimes I don't want to say manipulate, but certainly influence it. But then there were other times when I was actually the advisor or the consultant saying, here's some expertise that I could bring. Here's a path of, here's a solution, or here's a path to execution that I could bring forward. And so what prepared me for what I'm doing today has been, if I'd look over the 30 years of my career, probably certainly 15 plus of the last, I was in a pronounced role of being a strategic advisor you know, a trusted partner and a coach to rising leaders or to highly successful leaders. So that practical experience was very helpful. The second thing that was helpful for me is candidly just some direct formal training and the certification. When I stepped out of the corporate world, some of my <laughs> mentors were like, Ken, you don't need no stinking training. You know, you just, you've been doing this forever. Why don't you just, you know, start coaching? And I thought, you're right. And then I took a step back and I heard from a few other people that have actually experienced coach certification training. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this work, I really am committed to delivering gold standard. And I would love to benefit from the wisdom, the research of other people who've done this well. And honestly, it exceeded my expectations. So doing cert training and actual coaching techniques brought a lot of value. It could be just a level of confidence, but quite frankly, I think even the way that I um, execute my services has been shaped by the training and carried forward. Certainly, I think getting ready, getting some certifications under the belt, you know, things like the Hogan personality assessment or some of the industry-leading 360-degree feedback or their assessment tools can be a, a helpful tool in the belt as you step off as well. Did you go for International Coaching Federation's training as well? Is that where you went for certification? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of training that could be leveraged for the ICF or the International Coaching Federation certification. Has that just been since you've left your yes. CHRO role? You said dive straight in as you build yep. the business and... Yeah. And it certainly doesn't. So you can do it. It's an and it's a simultaneous work. I know a lot of people that are that pursue their coach certification while they're internal, because many people play defined coaching roles as internal HR professionals as well. There's a big difference between being an internal coach and an external coach, but the skill sets are very Say more about that when you think about the differences now that you're external and doing external coaching versus when you maybe did internal coaching, how you see the two, how they work together and, and what the differences are. 
Well, I think what's in common, especially when you're in the mode of coaching, is that you really are keeping the leader in the drivers. You are being that thinking partner. You're helping to expand perspective, increase self-awareness, and build executional executable plans forward. I think what's different when you're external is that you can be even safer. You know, I think as I was a coach internally to, you know, a new general council member or to other promoted executives, they found my support very helpful. But at the end of the day, I was still the head of human resources or as on the senior leadership team with a path to the CEO and I was an insider. And so as much as I tried to make it safe, I don't think it ever could be truly safe from being, because I was part of the organization and part of the executive team. So I can certainly be supportive, but there was a different degree, I think of, or a different level or a different kind of just safety in the conversations. When I'm external, um, let me not sound like I have a bad attitude, but I don't care. I mean, meaning the problem truly is not mine. And I can be, I can, I don't have a stake in the outcome except that that leader is successful. So when they're bringing problems or decision-making, you know, I may not have as much internal intelligence around the culture and the history and all that, but it helps me be a lot more neutral and sometimes even more expansive and on new ways to look at an issue or a challenge. What's your advice? What are the actions that we should take to become a better coach or executive coach, if you will, internally, right, with our leaders day to day? Well, I think um, similar to what I said before, I think to become a continuously better coach is to keep being a student of coaching technique and coaching art and science. Seek feedback from the clients that you're coaching on how did I come through for you? What did you need more of differently or better, you know, in the support that you got from think learning, hearing war stories of other coaching scenarios. You know, I engage in networking now just to talk about those tough nuts to crack and how do you address them? Or when you feel like you're, when you know you're hitting a blocked learner, how do you break through? Um, You have those, is it just me moments and you need to get another sounding board or two. So I think we know as professionals, leadership development doesn't happen in isolation. I, I don't think executive coaching can happen just people that are highly individualistic and autonomous at least the best ones i know have a really strong network of peers that help sharpen the iron are there two or three books you'd recommend folks read to become a better coach or continue to sharpen that saw on their coaching skills you know i'm getting into a lot of good coaching books but jp i'd almost like to step back and and almost think for HR people, whether you're a talent leader or a strategic human resource leader, and I think this actually does carry over into my coaching practice, but also the advisory consulting I do. There may be one or two books, but I actually think about a few authors that I really follow and appreciate. I think of Patrick Lencioni, who brings forward like books like The Advantage or Five, Five Dysfunctions, Dysfunctions of, of a team. team. Yeah. 
where I think there's a good research base under that, but it's, it's again, field tested. I think you both, you and I are big fans of Mark Efron, you know, who I forget his co-author, forgive me, but one page talent manager. Miriam Ort. Yep. Thank Miriam you. Ort. Yes. Has been really, I think for both coaching, but also just as human resource leaders is great. I don't want to say this is an oldie, but a goodie, but way back a long time ago, Dana Gaines Robinson put out this book called Performance Cult Coaching, which really revolutionized my way of thinking about human resource management. You know, the goal isn't to put out a good comp system. The goal is not to put out a good training program. The goal is performance. And how do you consult towards performance? That was super helpful. And lastly, I do love Marshall Goldsmith. Um, he really knows how to distill coaching, team, health, and intervention in its simplest forms. I think across those four thinkers, what you find is um, the ability to think deeply, but then distill it to practical, workable, doable service to, the, to clients. That's great, Ken. I, I love how you kind of reframe the question. It's obviously you are a coach because you could reframe the question that I asked and bring it back to a whole new learning. Those yeah. are all terrific authors, and I'll put that in the show notes so people can go find those folks and those references. So our last question is that, that signature question I love to ask every every guest, and that's really thinking about the future of HR. What's one word that you believe will define the future of HR over the next 10 years? Innovators. innovators. Tell me more about why innovators. We don't know. I think we're buckling our seatbelts for a crazy economy. I think we're still rebalancing and integrating learnings from managing the pandemic. I think we're still wrestling with the role that corporations should, could and should play related to social justice and equity. And I think there are just a lot more challenges and opportunities ahead. And the same old HR playbook isn't going to be the right solution for all the challenges ahead. I think innovators are people that can look at a problem from broader perspective with a wider lens, stealing from other even you know, practices to think about how do we um, do what's needed here to address the people dimensions of, of so many internal and external challenges. I think if we're not continuing to think about creative solutions, I don't know that we're going to be delivering what our businesses need that we're supporting. We can find you on keeneradvisors.com, I believe, right? That's how we can find you. That's I'm right. Give you a quick plug, but we'll make sure it's in the show notes as well. I'll take a plug. I'll take a plug. <laughs> All right, JP, hey, it's Ken. been really fun. I've enjoyed the Thank conversation. Thank you. Appreciate it, Ken. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. My thanks again to Ken Keener for his insights on leading change and becoming an executive coach. You can connect with Ken by going to his website, Keener Advisors, or find him on LinkedIn. Ken had a couple of great book suggestions I'll put in the show notes along with links to his website. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to subscribe or listen to other episodes. Also, I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show as well as what potential guests and topics you'd like to see in the future. 
drop me a line. Let's connect. On our next episode, we'll be speaking to Aaron Sorensen. Aaron's a partner and chief behavioral scientist at Lotus Blue Consulting, formerly known as Axiom Consulting Partners. And in our conversation, Aaron will share the number one skill needed to be a successful consultant. He will outline a proven and easy to use consulting framework that you can put to use tomorrow and explain why the employee experience will be even more important in the future. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.